have you ever had a moment when you have the thought go through your head, I must be missing something? Like there's something going on in a situation that you just don't get. You feel like something's going on that's confusing, I just don't get it. Uh, I had a moment like that the very first time that I was behind the wheel in my traffic safety education class. Uh, when I was a teenager, uh, we, this was a class you took in school. So my traffic safety instructor was one of the teachers at the Christian school that I went to. And I thought that the first lesson in the traffic safety car was going to be in the school parking lot. And I thought that because the instructor had said, your first lesson behind the wheel will be in the school parking lot. And so I got in the car with you know, two other students, the instructor, and then he said, you know what, we can just skip the parking lot, we're probably fine, let's just go out to a neighborhood. Well, I had not prepared for a neighborhood, I had only prepared for the parking lot, and I was kind of nervous about that. So we're, you know, we drive to this, this uh, quiet neighborhood, and it, when it was my turn to drive, I'm tooling around and I'm doing okay-ish, and then he says, okay, pull over to the curb and park, I do, and he says, okay, now pull away from the curb. And so I went through the checklist, and I released the parking brake, and I shifted into drive, and I turned the signal on, and I checked the mirror, and I did a head check, and I turned the steering wheel. I pressed the accelerator, and nothing happened. And I thought, did I, did I turn the key off when I, when I pulled over without thinking? So I made sure, no, it's on, and I went through the checklist again. Parking brake, shift into drive, turn signal, mirror, head check, turn the wheel, accelerator, nothing happened. And I was starting, I was starting to freak out because I was already really nervous and this was just making it worse. So I thought, what, what am I missing? I tried it a third time, same thing, press the accelerator, nothing happened. And then in that moment, in desperation, I put my head on the steering wheel and started to pray silently. Oh God, please help me figure out why the car won't move. Now, I went to a Christian school, so this wasn't like super weird. It's still a little strange to do. And the instructor said, uh, Tim, what are you doing? I just told him, I'm praying because I have no idea why the car won't go. And that's when he revealed that he had had his foot on the passenger side brake the whole time. He thought he was being funny. He was mistaken. But that's what I had been missing, that he was playing a prank on me. Uh, so you've probably had moments like that in your life where you come up to a situation and go, I just don't, I, I'm missing something here because it's just not working right. Maybe you've had that feeling when you're tackling a project, maybe something at work. I feel that way every time I try to assemble a piece of furniture. I must be missing something. No, I'm just bad at assembling furniture. That's all it is. Maybe you felt that in a relationship, in your marriage or with your kids or in some other important relationship. You hit an impasse and you go, I don't know why it's not working. What am I missing? I must be missing something. This can even happen in our relationship with God. It had happened to the believers in uh, Galatia, as we're going to see in the passage of Scripture that we're looking at today. Uh, they were struggling with a seemingly simple and basic part of following God, which is to do what's right and avoid doing what's wrong. They would have a hard time with this, and their situation was being made worse by some false teachers who had come in and were giving them the wrong answer to the question of what were they missing. They were getting some really bad instruction from these false teachers. And so Paul wrote the letter of Galatians in large part to correct this false teaching. 
uh, he lays a really good theological foundation in the first part of the letter. Then as he gets towards the end, he's making some practical application for them. And that's what we're going to see in the passage we're looking at today. If you have a Bible with you, you can open it to Galatians 5, 13 through 26. We're continuing on in our series on the Holy Spirit called Supernatural, Partnering with God for the Extraordinary. Now, as we're going to see as we look at these verses, we're going to see another very important way that we partner with God. That's what we want to see as we look at these verses this morning. So would you stand with me and follow along as I read these verses for us? <clears throat> you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Lord, we thank you for your word and for the revelation you want to bring by your Spirit through your word to us today. And we say yes to that. We pray that you'd open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see you more clearly today. We pray that you'd open our ears and our minds to hear and understand all that you want to say to us. And we open our hearts to you and pray that you would continue to move in this place. Quicken us, Lord, to make the responses that you want us to make today so that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. When we hear Paul give these contrasting lists of vices and virtues, it's really clear to us which list we want to describe our lives. We do not want our lives to be described by sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, dissension, factions, envy, and, and all the other works of the flesh. We want our lives to be characterized by love, joy, peace, and the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. We want that, but does that happen consistently? We talked a couple weeks ago about that profound change that the Holy Spirit works at that moment of salvation. And that change is real, it is profound, but we also have the lived reality that even post-conversion, we are tempted and we sometimes sin. We, we mean what we say in moments when we say, I want to do what's right. But then in other moments, we find ourselves choosing to do what's wrong. We want to live, to put it in biblical theological language, we want to live righteous lives. We want to do what's right. We want our lives to be characterized by rightness, by goodness, by moral excellence. We want that, but how does that happen? 
as the Galatians were struggling with this, what they were being told by these false teachers is what you need to do is that you need to follow the Old Testament Mosaic law. That's what you've been missing. They were saying, in effect, that uh, it's great that you have Jesus. That's great. But now you also need to become fully Jewish. You need to follow the Mosaic law. That's what you need to do in order for your salvation to really work. For you to actually be righteous, you need Jesus and you need the law. So for men in the churches in Galatia who had not been circumcised, these teachers were saying, you need to be circumcised. They're saying to everyone, you've got to follow the kosher and the purity laws. You've got to follow the Jewish calendar and all the festival and the feast days. And you've got to obey every instruction that's given in the, in the law. That's what you've been missing. That's what you need to be righteous. And for at least some of the people in Galatia, this was appealing to them. They thought, well, I mean, it sounds extreme, but if it's what I need to do for it to really work, okay, they're really contemplating doing that. And, and, and they were convinced that that's what they were missing. Now, I don't know how appealing it sounds to you to think about following the Old Testament Mosaic law as your path to righteousness. Maybe that's not specifically a struggle for you. But I think that all of us at times are tempted to rely on rules to make us righteous. Because haven't you responded to the mess in your life by making stronger, better rules for yourself? And haven't you tried to help the people you have some responsibility for by imposing stricter rules on them to help them be righteous? See, this makes a certain amount of sense in our minds. We want to be righteous. That means doing what's right and not doing what's wrong. The law, or whatever rules we come up with, tell us what's wrong. So if we just follow those rules, then we'll be righteous. And if we're, that doesn't work, the answer is to try harder, and it's to make better, stronger rules. It's to have stricter interpretations of the law. It's to try harder. But the only problem with that, even if it makes some sense to us, the problem, as many of us can testify, is that it doesn't work. And so we're left with some really unappealing options. A, just stay stuck in this vicious cycle of try and fail, try harder, fail again, try, fail, try, fail. Or B, we can change the standard to make it relative to other people. So I'm going to compare myself to you, and if I'm more righteous than you, then I can feel good about myself, or at least if I'm not as unrighteous as you. And if that's not actually the case, then I'm going to focus on keeping up appearances so that I look like I'm more righteous than you. That's option B. Option C is give up on the idea of righteousness altogether, give in to our urges and desires, and just do whatever we feel like we can get away with. And so when we look at that list of works of the flesh, it's like, well, bring on the orgies and the fits of rage because nothing else is working. I might as well just go for it. Doesn't it seem like we're missing something if those are the only options we've got? Doesn't it seem like there should be a better way? There is, and that's what Paul lays out in this passage. And no surprise, given the series we're in, that the key is the Holy Spirit. It's because of the Holy Spirit, and it's only through the Holy Spirit that we can be righteous. The Holy Spirit makes us righteous. That's part of how he works in our lives. So how does he do that, and how do we cooperate with him in that? That's what we're going to look at uh, uh, this morning. We're going to see a three-part answer to those questions. First of all, the Holy Spirit makes us righteous as he puts righteous desires in us. The Holy Spirit puts righteous desires in us. Look again at verses 16 and 17. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, 
and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do whatever you want. A great way to understand the flesh there is that's us apart from God. The flesh is us apart from God. So that means sinful, broken, dysfunctional, tainted. Those are all accurate descriptions of the flesh, not to mention weak, impotent, and doomed. And before we're saved and have the Holy Spirit, the flesh is who we are. The only desires we have are fleshly desires, sinful, distorted, broken desires. And even the desires we have to do good things are tainted by selfishness and self-promotion and self-protection. Now, when the Holy Spirit indwells us, remember we talked a couple weeks ago, that happens at that moment of salvation. The Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence within us. When that happens, he brings a different kind of desire into our lives. He brings righteous, good, holy desires as the Holy Spirit is within us. And these, what the Spirit desires is opposite of what our flesh desires. And so we feel that conflict that Paul describes. And we feel that conflict. On the one hand, I want to do this. The flesh, me apart from God, would want to do this. But God in me, the Holy Spirit, wants to do this. We feel that conflict. And sometimes that conflict can be discouraging to us. It's like, why don't I just want to do what's right? Why do I still want to do what's wrong? But I want to encourage you to see that conflict as a good thing. The fact that there's a fight means that there's an alternative. That we are not doomed to just do what our flesh desires. The fact that we even feel the conflict means there's an option for us. As uh, verse 17 says, that we don't have to do whatever we want. Whatever we apart from God would want. There's another way. There's another set of options. There's other desires at work within us because the Holy Spirit has put those desires in us. So the Holy Spirit's done that. That's great. What's our response? How do we cooperate with the Holy Spirit so that the righteous desires win that conflict? Well, Paul says there in verse 16, walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. And uh, he probably chooses that language to purposefully echo Language we hear several places in the Old Testament where God's people are commanded to walk in God's laws or walk in his statutes. And because the law had been such a topic of conversation in Galatia, Paul uses that similar language. And it was appropriate in Old Testament times, under that old covenant, it was appropriate for God's people to be told, walk in the law. But now Paul's saying, now because of what Jesus has done, now that we have the Holy Spirit, it's more appropriate to say walk in the Spirit rather than walk in the law. When that command was given to walk in the law, that meant pay attention to the law. Keep the law always in mind. Be focused on the law. And Paul's saying, yeah, but now walk in the Spirit, meaning pay attention to the Spirit. Keep your mind focused on the Spirit. Understand what the Spirit wants and requires. It's a shift of focus and attention to walk in the Spirit. And when we do this, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Gratify there is the Greek word for complete. We do not complete those desires by acting on them. The desire to do something is not the same as doing it. The temptation to lust is not the same as lusting. The desire to treat someone as if they're more important than God is not the same as idolatry. The the temptation to gossip is not the same as gossiping. We can interrupt that, that progress from desire to act when we walk in the Spirit. We don't have to complete those desires and act on them. 
We walk in the Spirit. We don't gratify the desires of our flesh. This means, a big part of this, is that we keep our minds set on the Spirit. And we're thinking about the Spirit and His desires more than we're thinking about the temptation or even thinking about the rule against doing that. We think about the Spirit. Now, those desires are there. We're not in denial about them. We acknowledge them. And God has given us absolute moral standards of right and wrong. We are not you know, minimizing or relativizing those in any way. It's just where we're going to put our focus is on the Spirit and on His desires. Let's, let's try a thought experiment to kind of illustrate this. So w- what I want you to do for the next minute or so is I don't want you to think at all about dogs. Do not think about dogs. Do not think about your dog who's waiting to greet you when you get home and is going to be so excited to see you. Don't think about your dog. Don't think about the dog you had as a family growing up. Don't think about how fun it was to get it as a puppy. Don't think about how sad it was when it went to live on a farm upstate. Uh, Don't think about dogs. Don't think about Ashley's new puppy in the enclosure out there that you saw when you came in. Do not think about Dutch. Do not. Do not think about dogs. Don't think about how much you like or dislike dogs. Do not think about how dogs smell. Do not think about whether you like it or dislike it when dogs lick you and sniff you. Don't in any way, shape, or form think about dogs. Instead, when you think about cats, and my cat in particular. Uh, we have a cat. His name is Max. Some of you have been at our house. You've met him. He's all black. And he's actually our daughter's cat who we inherited when she moved out. About five or six years ago, she convinced me that we should have a cat, something I'd been pretty opposed to. But my daughter talked me into it, and so we got this cat. Then she moved out. Now we have a cat. And I got to say, although I didn't originally want a cat, I really like Max. I've been one over. Uh, Max is an inside cat, mostly. He actually sleeps on our bed with us at night, which I never thought I would be a have an animal sleep on the bed with you type of guy, but here I am. Uh, Max actually sleeps on Echo's feet, which makes it hard for her to roll over in the middle of the night, but that's Max. So uh, Max is our cat, and, and I actually like him. Okay, end of the experiment. Let me ask you, was it easier not to think about dogs when I was telling you how much not to think about dogs or when I was describing my cat? Yeah. And I'm not drawing equivalently between the flesh and dogs and the cats and the Holy Spirit. That's not, that's not where we're going. It's just to understand that when we're tempted, it can be easy to give so much focus to that, to think about how much we want to do it, or even to think about how much we shouldn't do it, that we, that we actually end up focusing on that and instead of focusing on the Spirit. So walking in the Spirit means that we acknowledge the temptation. Oh, it's there. I want to do it. We acknowledge the, the rule, the standard that God's given. It would be wrong to do that. And then, and then we walk in the Spirit by focusing on the Spirit and what He desires. As Romans 8, 5 says, we set our minds on what the Spirit desires. That's a big part of what it means to walk in the Spirit, a big part of what it means to cooperate with the Holy Spirit as He works to make us righteous. He puts righteous desires in us, so we walk in the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit produces righteous character in us. He produces righteous character. Look again at verses 18 through 24. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, 
drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The Holy Spirit produces righteous character in us. See, we have this stark contrast here between the, the, the acts or the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. So we see what the, how the flesh acts, how the flesh works, what it looks like when the flesh is working. We also see what the Holy Spirit does, what it looks like when he's working. And when he's at work, there's this fruit that's produced in our lives. Fruit is a great image here because it talks about something that's done in us and through us, but not something that we make or do. We don't make ourselves righteous. We don't change our own character. That is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to produce that in us. Fruit is also a good image here because fruit develops over time. And what we're talking about with these character traits are not things that are developed in us to full maturity in an instant, but character qualities that should be increasingly evident in our lives over time. We're growing into this. This is consistently true of us. You know, Paul gives that warning at the end of verse um, 21 where he says, I warn you that those who live like this, like the works of the flesh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that, that verb there for live, it has a continuous force to it. So he's saying those who live and keep on living like this, those who keep living this way, won't inherit the kingdom of God. And that's the contrast. We don't want to keep on living that way we want to keep on seeing the character of Jesus produced in us by the Holy Spirit. We want to keep on seeing the fruit of the Spirit more and more evident in our lives. And, and so the Holy Spirit's at work to do this in us, to produce this fruit of righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit. And we cooperate with Him in this as we are led by Him. We're led by the Spirit. Uh, the idea of being led by the Spirit follows closely with the idea of walking in the Spirit, so we're paying attention to the Spirit and what He desires, those righteous desires we put him in us, and then we're led by Him as we actually do what He wants us to do. As we make choices day by day, minute by minute, to do what He's telling us to do, we're being led by Him. We're following Him. We're submitting to Him. We're yielding to Him. We're choosing to do what He wants us to do. And we're being led by the Holy Spirit, not by our flesh. Or by, or by the law, or by our desires. We're not being led by the devil and his attacks to tempt and accuse and distract and destroy us. We're not being led by this world. We're not being led by the loudest voices in politics or entertainment or media or whatever else. We're not even being led ultimately by Christian leaders, except when they help us to be led by the Spirit. And when that's not the case, when a leader is controlling instead of leading when he's drawing attention to himself instead of drawing attention to the Holy Spirit, when he's uh, acting as if he speaks exclusively for God or you have to go through him to get to God, then we don't follow those kind of leaders because they're not helping us follow the Holy Spirit and be led by him. We're led by the Spirit. And when we do this, we are producing a, we're providing a great environment in our life in which the fruit of the Spirit can be produced. Like, I'm not a gardener. Many of you are, I'm not. But even I, as a non-gardener, know that plants grow better when you give them the right amount of water, when you keep pests away from them, 
when you weed around them. The gardener does not produce the crop, but what the gardener does, does influence the yield. And the same is true for us and the Holy Spirit in us. He produces that fruit in us, but what we do as we cooperate with him makes a difference in how that goes, how quickly it happens and how thoroughly it happens. We have a part to play. And what we're aiming for here is not perfection, but it, we are aiming for consistency, that it would consistently be true that we're being led by the Spirit, we're doing what He wants us to do. And if there's times that we realize, oh, I've been led by someone or something else, then we quickly repent and realign so that it will be consistently true that we're led by the Spirit. Paul gives that list of the fruit of the Spirit, and then he says, against such things there is no law. When you read that, does that strike you as kind of a duh statement? Like, there's no law against goodness. Okay, thanks, Paul. Great point. But I think what the reason Paul said this is because he was referring to something that his readers would have been familiar with. I think he was referring to something that Aristotle said in his writings on ethics. In his Politica, uh, Aristotle said, against such people, there is no law. And in Greek, it's almost exactly the same phrase as Paul uses here in Galatians. One commentator uh, said this about what Aristotle meant by that. He meant that there are persons who surpass their fellow human beings in virtue and so live like gods among humans. These sorts of persons do not need to have their conduct regulated by law. Indeed, they constitute a law or standard by which others can measure themselves. So what Paul may be meaning by against such people there is no law, that commentator goes on to say, he means that persons who manifest these traits, the fruit of the Spirit, are exceedingly virtuous and have no need of law, in this case, the Mosaic Law. Instead, they constitute a law or standard by which others should be measured. Christ is the Christian standard, and to the extent they manifest Christ-like qualities, they too become a standard for others. Indeed, they appear as Christ among others. Isn't that kind of a mind-blowing thought? That when someone asks, what does righteousness mean? What does righteousness look like? Instead of pointing them to a list of rules... They should be able to look at our lives. And to the extent that we are increasingly looking like Jesus, they're going to have an increasingly accurate understanding of what righteousness is. As they look like us, if we look like Christ, they're going to understand what righteousness is. Not by us pointing to the law, but by us living righteously. That's what's possible as we are led by the Spirit. We cooperate with the Holy Spirit producing righteousness in us. He does that as he puts righteous desires in us as he produces righteous character in us, and third, as he prompts righteous behavior between us. He prompts righteous behavior between us. Now, our default is probably to think of righteousness in individualistic terms. And it's true that, that each of us is made righteous from God. Each of us needs to be made righteous by God. You are not made righteous by being part of a group. You're not made righteous because you're related to someone who's righteous each of us needs to be made righteous by God. And we each have a personal responsibility to do what's right. All of that is true. But that individual righteousness is meant to be lived out and seen in relationships with other people. Uh, in in the, the context here, Paul starts and ends this passage with explicit instructions about how we're to treat other people. In verses 13 and 14, he gives the context what the first fruit of the Spirit, love, should look like. He says, serve one another humbly in love. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. 
In verse 15, he says that we got to be careful not to bite and devour and destroy each other. And then in verse 26, he says, don't be conceited, provoking and envying each other. And for Paul, those comments about how we treat one another, they're not unrelated to what he's saying about righteousness. They're connected. What Paul's communicating here is that we are not fully righteous to the degree that God intends for us to be until that righteousness is seen in how we treat other people, until it's seen externally. The picture of righteousness here is not a righteous individual in their room by themselves just being righteous. This is not a monk who's taken a vow of solitude and has been in his cell by himself being righteous for decades. No, the picture here is of people loving each other, righteous people showing righteousness to others as they act rightly in their relationships. This is the picture, and, and, and we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in this as, Paul says, we live by the Spirit. Living by the Spirit uh, includes a lot of what we talked about with walking in the Spirit and being led by the Spirit. So we are putting our mind on what the Spirit desires. We're focusing on Him, and then we're making the choice to be led by Him and act the way He wants, which means that in our relationships with other people, we're making that choice day by day that I'm going to treat you the way that God's telling me to treat you. I'm going to act towards you the way that He wants me to act towards you. I'm going to show love in the ways that He's prompting me to show love. We're living by the Spirit when we're showing that to one another. And when we do this, we are keeping in step with the Spirit. That the image of keeping in step, it's like a military unit walking in, in unity as they follow the same cadence that's being called. So see, when we are keeping in step with the Spirit, we are, as I've heard it applied in, before, we are not running ahead of the Spirit, we are not lagging behind the Spirit, we are right with Him, in step with Him, that's true. But when we're in step with the Spirit individually, it means that we're unified with everyone else who's in step with the Spirit, who's stepping to that same cadence of the Spirit's call and direction that we are. And this is the the, the vision that Paul unveils. It's not just about individually righteous believers. It's about a supernaturally righteous community being formed and showing the righteousness of Jesus to the world that so desperately needs to understand it. When Paul gives those works of the flesh, the the first and last ones describe things that happen in the pagan temples. Sexual immorality, that word originally referred to temple prostitution. It had a broader meaning when Paul used it, but it still included that. So sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, drunkenness, which means like bouts of drunkenness, and orgies. That was all stuff that happened in the pagan temples when they were worshiping their gods. And in between those descriptions, the middle eight words describe what can happen in a church that's not being led by the Holy Spirit. Dissension, discord, hatred, factions, jealousy, envy, all the rest. Part of what Paul's communicating is that a church that's exhibiting those works of the flesh is not any better than a pagan temple with all the depraved, unrighteous things that happen there. There's, there's, on the negative side, Paul's warning us Don't give in to those works of the flesh, even the ones that can show up in church, not just a pagan temple. But on the positive side, Paul's calling us to something more because he's calling us to exhibit fruit of the Spirit, all of which are meant to be seen in our relationships with others and many of which can only be seen in our relationships with other people. That when we we exhibit these, when we're living according to the Spirit, we love not just God, but we love others. And it's evident to them that we love them. 
Our joy is evident to others. We're not joyful by ourselves in a way that no one can tell. Like, it's evident that we're joyful. And, and we're at peace, uh, even when life is not peaceful. And we're at peace with others, as far as it depends on us. And we show forbearance to others, even when they're being really infuriating. We're still patient with them. And we're kind, and we treat others well when they don't treat us well. You can't be kind by yourself in a room. It takes other people. We're kind, we're good to others, even if they're not good to us. We are faithful in our relationships and to the commitments we've made to other people. We're gentle as we treat them, and we're self-controlled for the sake of others. I restrain my passions and my reactions and my words so that it will be obvious to you that I love you and I honor you. By painting this picture, Paul is calling us to be an alternate kind of community, one that you can't find anywhere else in the world, a community of people that are characterized by freedom, mutual service, love, unity, and righteousness. So the question for us today is not just what kind of person do you want to be, it's what kind of community do we want to be. It is true that God makes each of us righteous. The Holy Spirit does this in us. It's true. He puts righteous desires in us. So absolutely, let's walk in the Spirit. Let's set our minds what the Spirit desires. Let's let that conflict we feel remind us, well, at least there's another way I could go. Let's not gratify or complete those desires by carrying them forward into actions. Let's do that. The Holy Spirit does produce righteous character in us. Amen. That's true. And so we want to We want to uh, be led by the Spirit, follow Him, not anyone or anything else instead of Him. We want to provide that good environment in our lives where the fruit of the Spirit can be produced and grow. And yes, the Holy Spirit prompts righteous behavior between us. We're not really righteous until we act righteously toward other people. So we're going to live by the Spirit and we're going to show with the choices we make, not just in the corners of our minds or in the solitude of our rooms, but in our relationships with actual other people, we're going to show that we're, that we're following the Holy Spirit and we're choosing what He wants us to choose. And we're going to keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit as a church family, as chapel in the pines. Isn't that what we want? to be marching together to the cadence that the Holy Spirit is calling. Not going our own ways, living out individually what he calls us to, but marching to the same cadence, unified, demonstrating to a watching world, this is what righteous community can look like. That would be an amazing, supernatural, extraordinary work that we could partner with the Holy Spirit in. As we think about responding to God's word today, I'm really glad that we get to take communion as part of that response. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back up and be ready to, uh, uh, to, to lead us. And um, in, in communion, we're remembering what Jesus did on the cross. You know, it said there in, um, I think it might be like verse 24, it says that those who belong to Christ Jesus has, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And that whole idea that we identify with Jesus' death, that what we just saw exemplified in baptism that we died with him to that old way of living that we share in his death we've crucified that old way of living and now we've been raised to new life with him and we get his righteousness another way to talk about what we've been saying today the holy spirit makes us righteous he's applying the righteousness of jesus in our lives jesus lived a perfectly righteous life 
And when he died on the cross, he not only provided for our sins to be forgiven and cleansed, but for us to receive his righteousness. So that's part of what we remember in communion, and that's what the Holy Spirit does as we've seen today. So I want to encourage you as we come to this time of communion to take a minute to thoughtfully reflect and respond to God in whatever ways he's calling you to respond today. And then you can come by yourself or with family or friends to one of the stations. You see we've got two in the front and two in the back. Uh, Take the bread and the cup, step to the side, pray, and then partake with whoever is there with you. Remembering that Jesus let his body be broken for us. That's what we remember in the bread. He let his blood be shed for us. That's what we remember in the cup. And by doing that, we can remember his righteousness and how it's applied in our lives. So would you pray with me? Lord, we do thank you for your work that makes us righteous. Jesus, we thank you for that. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you apply that in our lives. As we come to this time of communion now, Jesus, it's with gratitude and just incredible thankfulness. Thank you for living that perfectly righteous life so that we could be righteous. We honor you. We remember you now as we take communion. In your name we pray. Amen.